I want to take a text. Actually, the truth is the text has taken me. And um, I've been, and I'll use the word wrestling. That's not a negative term. Um, that this text has been turning my mind inside out for the last few days. And I don't know whether we'll deal all of what this text is saying today might end up as a three-week series. But um, just quickly, let's look at it in verse 13 of Psalm 27. He said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, you probably heard that text, know that text, and that's what I thought. And um, it, it's, of course, Psalm 27, which is one of the Psalms written during the time that Absalom, the son of David, rose up to kill his father and take his throne. We've been there many times before in many of the Psalms that cover this period. But as I look at it today, I want you just to see what David was actually going through. Leave aside the specific events and come into the heart of David, into his emotions. He was in a time of extreme loss. He had lost his family in more ways than one, but also he had lost his kingdom. He was the king, and now the king has become a refugee the other side of Jordan. That is extreme loss, that as we sit here and talk about it, we're not even touching the surface. Uh, of course, he is surrounded by threats, and threats that come from his son, uh, specifically, but of course his son now has got a number of persons with him. He has despaired of life because he's got a very small company of persons that fled with him. And how can he protect himself from this crazy son? So he's in a position of no hope for any future as being alive, let alone be replaced as king. He's rejected by the son and by all the people that have followed the son. It's a sense of abandoned by his closest friends, which is another story we've not even touched on in these various excursions into these psalms. But his closest friend was someone whose name was Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had gone over to Absalom, which is almost unbelievable. And David has other psalms written about that when he says, we, we walk together in the closest of covenant fellowship and you've stabbed me in the back. Uh, and the, the grief, the anguish of, of that rejection, um, he, by the people, was looked at as unfit. He, he's too old. He's an old man now. And, and so he's got to be put aside, bring on, bring on the younger guy. And, well, of course, in those days, if you bring on the younger, you kill off the older. And, and so, again, he's facing all of those things. Fear, anxiety, not knowing what the next minute is going to bring forth. 
and he's going out as a refugee. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was the symbol to the Jewish people. I'm going to my own funeral. I'm the walking dead. I would sum him up as saying the most lonely, the most anxious, the most hopeless of men in in the Bible at that point. Yet, he wrote this psalm at that time. He wrote Psalm 23. He wrote Psalm number 3. He wrote this one. And if we had the time, you read the psalm slowly. Those opening verses, they're, they're some of the most famous verses among Christians. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? My enemies come upon me to eat up my flesh. Of this I am... Come on, David, where does he get that from? What well is he drawing from to be able to write the first verses of this psalm when he is in this condition that I've just outlined? And at the end, he tells us the secret. He tells us where he got that strength and where he got that ability and insight to say those words it's in that verse i've just read he said i would have despaired i would have the the situation that i'm in of course i would have despaired no hope but i believed to see the goodness of god in the land of the living Hmm. there's an enormous statement there Because he said that in the face of everything that he was looking at. And I I outlined it as I did because I want you to realize he's talking about every one of us. Because any of those words could be applied to us at any given point in our life. Maybe we haven't had his exact situation, but we know the rejection, we know the abandonment, we know the fears and the anxieties and the hopelessness and the despair. We know all of that. And in the face of all that I just outlined, let me say it again, in the face of it, it's staring him down. This is reality. This is happening. Everything he saw with his own eyes, heard with his own ears, The opinion of even his best friends, it's time for you to get out of here. And also the opinion voiced by the voice inside of him. Now that's the worst. Uh, It's one thing for the people and Ayatollah, but he himself. And again, we've seen that, that he had great contribution to what was happening now in a dysfunctional family and a dysfunctional relationship to Absalom and his own terrible mess-up of life with Bathsheba. He's got plenty of voices going on inside of him that would be saying all of that. Yet he believed to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Now, let me say what I want to really emphasize that we have today many believers, many believers who do not believe, they're not sure of the goodness of God. That's a simple fact, and I'm not going to excuse 
and sorry I didn't really mean that. I meant it. I meant it actually a little bit stronger than I said it. Um, there, there are believers in the middle of great darkness, darkness that produces the words that I've used, and they're there and they don't know how to get out because they don't believe in the goodness of God. And how, how do I say that? Well, there's many ways of looking at it. But we have been raised in a religious context, society even, to see a God that you're not sure of. We've been raised to be suspicious of God. And so something bad happens and within minutes on the media and um, I mean social media, you will have great exposition that this is the judgment of God. Somehow, somebody's done something that's royally upset God, and so he lashes out like a spoiled child, and down goes a lot of people. Uh, and and usually, uh, if you read that stuff, the people who are being, quote, judged, are nothing to do with the reason. Uh, and so when the Twin Towers came down in New York, we had some great prophets tell us it was because of certain moral positions that the government had taken. Um, well, the people who went down in the Twin Towers had nothing to do with that, but that's the God they worship. He just lashes out and, and, and doesn't like us. Uh, but and, and you're looking at me as if, well, that's not me, and I, I know that's not you. But the fact is, it's there. It's sort of, that's the religious air we're breathing. That's the religious air we were raised with. It comes down when something is happening to the individual. I hear it all the time. Am I being, am I now? We're not talking about national. Am I being punished? Am I being punished? Have I, have I done something wrong? Why does God allow this to happen to me? And the tone of voice is, God, if you were good, you wouldn't be doing this. And, and, and so, and then, of course, you've got the other end of the scale that they, they worship a weird God because they say, well, he's doing this to me to teach me a lesson. Oh, great, big. And so, therefore, in some twisted kind of way, this has become a good thing. Uh, there's no way you're going through this and trusting the goodness of God if you're as messed up with any of that. The, the, David was very strong. There, there is no fear, there's no suggestion that maybe I'm wrong, maybe God's indeed punishing me, maybe I have done something that brought this... No, there's none of that. He said, I believed to see the goodness of God. Um, today, fear characterizes the lives of so many believers, I would almost define their Christian life as a life of fear. Uh, and I can understand that because the gospel that has been preached has essentially been that Jesus came to save us from God. I've actually heard that preached in Calvinistic churches, that Jesus came to save us from God. Huh. Then 
then the, the, the God, God the Father, must be some monster. How could you possibly trust your entire life and future into the hands of a monster that Jesus hopefully is saving you from? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? There's no expectation of goodness. Christian life began with fear. You were escaping God. You were escaping his punishment. There's no sense of goodness there at all. It's fear. And if you began with fear, you're going to need a lot more fear to keep going. Fear begets fear. It has to. You can't, you can't start with fear and then here, well, uh, forget the fear, it's all okay. No, fear must build fear. It's the way it is. And so the motive for moving forward in this alleged Christian life is fear and more fear. We have been programmed, you and I here in the Western world, we have been programmed to be afraid, not, not rest in the goodness of God. And let me say a little bit more about this word goodness in the light of what I just said. And hear me carefully now. God's goodness is not an alien goodness, by which I mean he's not talking another language that we don't understand. It's, it's this idea that he's, he hurts us, but really it's good. I've been around the churches. I've heard this many times. It's an alien God. He doesn't talk our language. In fact, his language is backwards. And so something bad happens in your life and you're told, well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, you see. Um, and I'll name names at this point. There's one of the biggest voices in America on the Calvinistic position. His name is John Piper, just up there in Illinois. And, and he has said, and it's in print, that God delights in, in, in such deaths uh, as, as come about in hurricanes. And, and he says, every person that died in the Twin Towers going down died because God killed them. That was God's. And they said, it's all for the good. It's all for the good. Okay, so I don't believe that, no. But I say, again, that's the poisonous gas that's in, in the USA and being exported to I don't know how many countries. No, the, when God speaks the word good, he talks the same language as we do. Good is good. It's not some word where you have to twist it around and say bad equals good. No, God speaks our language. When he says he's good, it means he is pro-human life. He's on our side. He invented us. He created us. And he did so because he wills our good. What kind of inventor would invent something because he wanted to see how many times he could destroy it? No, you see how stupid this is? But that's the world in which we live. Um, if he's good, then he's affirming our potential. He's not in the breaking up of something. He's not in um, losing. He's, if he made us with needs, good, simple needs, like a good meal, 
like clothes on your back, like a bed to sleep in. He, he made us with those needs. Then it makes all the logic that good is that he will supply those needs. He's good. And he, he's made us in his own image so that we fit him and he fits us. And therefore, he places desires in the heart of man because he wills to meet them. David expected goodness. I haven't despaired because I believe to see the goodness of God. I expect it. I expect to see it. It's interesting, Psalm 23, written almost at the same time, um, when he was there, a refugee from his own son. Do you remember how that ends? Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. He said that under the same circumstances. This was on his mind. Comes out on the same uh, Psalms. His goodness would pursue him. Goodness, the goodness of God was the North Star of David's map. This is, this is, I, I can plot my course in life. I, I can see the path clear ahead because I see the goodness of God. And that is an unchangeable and immovable, the goodness of God. And it will pursue me all the days of my life. So when I say the goodness of God, um, I'm, I'm trying to narrow this down as to what we're, we're saying. It is God. God is, is, is good. That, that's got the, the solidarity about it. It is so. Don't have to discuss it. Don't have to pray about it. God is, is good. That means that God's goodness is not a mood that he has. He is good. He's not in a, I saw this actually down in, in, in New Orleans. I saw it was, you know, what, you know, on, Anyway, but so these very well-meaning teenagers, God bless them, and I mean it, but they, they were trying to communicate with the crowd that are down there on the streets of New Orleans, and they had this big sign, God is in a good mood today. Sort of come and get the special. He, he's, he's in a good mood and don't expect it to last, you know. But that's the atmosphere in the churches that are represented by many of you. Because I could tell you where that crowd came from and you'd never believe that they would put a sign up like that, but they, that's what they believe. God's in a good mood. No, God is good. He, he's not a chance that, that unexplainably is good to some and not good to others. It's his being See, we've got to burrow deep here into what this word really means because, we again, we're so conditioned. Have a good day. What does that mean? I don't have a, I mean, yeah. And, of course, good luck. And, of course, see, I was around, well, more than around. I was one of the leaders of the charismatic movement. And... Certain things came up, and, and again, God bless them. I know they suddenly discovered a good God. Uh, but do you remember some of you? 
It might even have hung over. People would testify, you know, I, I, I was coming to the meeting and because there were so many cars, you couldn't hardly get near the place. But I, I, I found a parking lot right in front. God gave me the parking lot. And everybody said, oh, yes, God is good. God is good. And I remember getting up after one of those testimonies and saying, so you were the person that stole my parking lot. That, so for you, he was a good God. You made me walk two miles. So for me, God was a bad God. Are you going to define God by some happy thing that happened to you? Seriously. Don't you remember, I don't know how many years ago, uh, and, and certain Christians um, on the East Coast, they, they prayed the hurricane away. Do you remember that? The hurricane was heading straight toward them, and they prayed, and it turned. And everybody in that town said, God is a good God. Well, I don't think so, because there was a bunch of other Christians that were nearly washed away. You see, we're going to shut up this stupid use of the word good. Um, if you're going to define God by the odd chance that he does something for you, or it appears he does, uh, and you say, well, that, that proves he's a good God. Well, think of all the other times when it didn't happen. Uh, does that mean he's a bad God? Okay, you're looking serious now. That's, we, we don't define God's goodness by things that happen to me. That's massive. We don't blame him for evil, which means we have to ease out of what is part of at least American language. When anything bad that happens, it is officially by insurance companies called an act of God, that God did something bad. So we call it an act of God. Well, you don't define God by things that happen. You, nor, you see, can you define his goodness by things happening that please you. Uh, it might indeed connect, as long as you understand what you're saying, but be very careful. You can't blame God and say, well, today he wasn't good. Nor can you say, today he was so good. You know, the chicken was on sale, and, and so God is good. Uh, do, do you realize, but some people live there, you see. Um, we define him as good because he is good. He is fundamentally in his essence in his being he is good and it's only when i understand what I, I just said that now we can see the goodness of god in our life he is good he is good in himself it's his being he cannot be otherwise and he is good to us and he is good to in every situation which is reflected in the new testament when he says in everything give thanks because they they, they see what the goodness of god is and they can and go through the Psalms. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost ridiculous just to quote them. Psalm 145, God is, that's the word, is good to all. Psalm 25, good is I am. Psalm 75, surely God is good. Psalm 106, give thanks for he is good. 
So that means he's good to all creation. Wherever I turn, I, I can see the goodness of God, and specifically for us, his children. Good. He's good. He is good, and he's good to us. At what point is he good to us? Well, us, us, which means my deepest core self, my spirit, but also in my emotions, in, in my mind. He's good to me in my mind. He is good to me in my body. He's good to me in my possessions, in my work. God is good. That's what it's saying. Moses said, show to me your glory. Do you remember that? What, did, what was the answer to that? He said, my goodness will pass before you. So the goodness of God is the glory of God. Because we could stay a long, long way there. But if you read as that goodness passed before him, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, that, that my loving kindness, my covenant love toward you, um, my forgiveness and so on. He was defining goodness as his love in action. What does goodness mean, at least in the scripture? Its number one meaning is kind. It's kind. Do you know the meaning of kind? Um, it's an old English word. It means to be useful. It means your action is perfectly suited to my point of need. So when we say that the teenager was kind helping the old lady across the road, that's a, that's a very good definition of kind. That's exactly what she needed. And it's, it's love being there to be what you need love to be. And it's, I have to hesitate almost before saying it, but when I say God is good, I have to say, in, with great reverence, he's useful. Um, he, he is always there exactly where I need him. He's always there to be exactly what I need him to be. That, that's, that's his goodness, his care for us. It contains in it the idea of gentle. He's never harsh. It means tender. It's actually soft love, almost the feminine side of love. It's the compassion of God. He gently, kindly, compassionately acts toward us. Or you could reduce it to one word. If he's good, then he is limitlessly safe. He is a safe God. He's safe. Don't have to be scared. Let's not be afraid of. Interestingly, the word is used in the Bible to describe aged wine. Jesus called it good wine, aged. Which means if aged wine, you would define it as it's rich in taste, it is pleasant, it is smooth. It is not harsh and bitter as young wine would be. And, and it's interesting that he uses goodness as, as that, first of all, as wine. So then I can understand why it says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you'll find 
there's 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 more to the taste it's a bold taste of god within it all of these expressions of his love it's it's a pleasantness he's he's never harsh with you or acts 10 38 it says of jesus it sums his entire life it says that jesus went about doing good and under that heading says healing all who were oppressed of the devil so there goodness means he steps into our brokenness into the extent of our needs in the darkness and he's the healer he's the one who makes us whole that's goodness and is is good but if he is good he can't be anything else which means then he owns his goodness do you follow me he owns it you don't so you can't do anything to make him be good because he's good long before you showed up you you were born into a good god but then by the same token you can't do something to make him not good you can't you can't scare him off you can't twist his mood around so now he's not going to be nice because he is do you understand that word is is means he is and there's never a was and there's never a will be he'll never improve to the point of being good nor he was good a long time ago but it doesn't work anymore is the continual present tense of the fullness of his goodness he is and you can't stop him being good you you can snuggle down into the darkness in a chosen blindness never enjoy the goodness of god and kick against the goodness of god but you can't stop him being good he said and speaking of the goodness of the father and he said because he he sends his rain upon the just and the unjust and you go down the ranches you don't see some have had rain but next door they didn't get any rain for the last 10 years because they're not good enough um god in his creation goodness meets every person when jesus went about doing good and in that many sat down with tax collectors and prostitutes as well as with pharisees that's he he washed the feet of judas before judas went to betray him judas betrayed him with a piece of bread in his hand jesus gave him the honored piece at the table and his feet were still wet as he went to betray him jesus was good to all he reached out to all though as i say it's a, so so you've got to understand goodness is holistic it's it's not just um sort of some spiritual thing whatever that is because all that you are spiritually you are in all the way through um i expect his goodness holistically i expect my deepest being to be confronted embraced and kissed by his goodness every day 
But I expect his goodness to give me insight in my mind to see his goodness. I expect my emotions to dance with his goodness. I expect his goodness in every cell of my mortal body. I expect his goodness sitting on the table every mealtime. I expect his goodness through the night hours. It's holistic. I expect goodness as I go to my work. I expect goodness as I go to school. I expect the goodness of God. So we are people whose eyes are set deliberately upon the goodness of God. And of course, have you noticed the gospel? That's an old English word from way back. Do you know what it means in plain English? Good news of the good God. And right at the get-go, it says the goodness of God leads us to that metanoia, you know, that radical, radical change of mind or actually exchange of receiving another mind, which is the beginning of the gospel. So that in in my understanding of life and my perception of God, I see that he is good. And I like it. Um, He leads us, leads us. That's another interesting word. The word lead, it means a gentle. There we go again. Gentle, but relentless. It's what a shepherd would do with a stubborn sheep. Gentle, kind compassionate but relentless he's going to get that sheep where he wants it um the word is illustrated in the parable of jesus of the shepherd going to find the lost sheep uh he was a, the shepherd went and he's not coming home without that sheep he's going to lead it home yeah there's an absolute about goodness and i'm not going we've been there before in Psalm 23, where he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. Surely. It's a covenant word. It means there is no alternative. There's no discussion. You can take this <clears throat> this one to the bank. Build your life on it. It's the foundation of all foundations. David stood into that. It's, it's the dimension of enough and to spare. <clears throat> God is good. It is, it's the opposite of a poverty mindset. And a poverty mindset is not necessarily to do with money. It's so far at the end of the trailer, it's not worth talking about. Poverty mindset is, we, we, we act as if there's not enough love to go around. We, there's not enough of God's power in this situation to do anything. So, how could I put it? Um, well, as I say that, it, it comes down into my mind and emotions I I don't have enough. That is the key word of anxiety. I don't have enough. Um, I am challenged to do this, but I don't have enough strength. I don't have the mind to do it. I I don't have... It's never enough, never enough, never enough. 
I, I live in this poverty mindset. Now that trickles down into material things and we look at life and say we're not going to have enough to eat. We're, there's not enough clothes in the closet. We're, 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 and they, that is spoken as prophecy. It's We look at our life and speak of the next number of weeks or months and we talk in those terms. Never enough, never enough, never enough. Um, whereas when I say God is good... I am speaking of infinite supply, infinite supply. Now, of course, I, I don't know if you've just noticed it, but there again, we have been raised in another mentality. We have been raised to believe that there's something good about poverty. Um well, that came in. I mean, the early church believed what I'm saying. That's why I'm talking out of. What happened that now anyone living in abject poverty, dying of TB, now you're, you're in the possibility of being a saint in the Roman Catholic Church because um, they, they look upon pain and suffering as the gift of God. And you see, we were raised in that, though you don't, it's part of the poison gas that goes through Western Christianity. We're not sure. And so even when we pray for people, it's that whine in our voice, it's groveling. I hate it. I hate that religious whine. And always, and then if it be your will, because we know you, I can't depend on you. I mean, we're suspicious of you. So we, we put out what we want. And it's using materialistic terms, something we need here, healing we need there, but always, but what's the point? Do what you want, if it be your will. Uh, that, that's not what David said. The, they, David is said he is good, and that's what carried me through this. I, I, I believe to see it. And, and Jesus was convinced of his father's goodness. To, to look when he talked about food and clothing do you remember that he said don't be anxious um, you don't, don't go around like the pagans saying what are we going to eat where are we going to live what's going to be um, on our backs <laughs> don't, don't be anxious what, what did he say father knows uh, come on come on come on tell, tell me more no what, what more do you need father knows and father's good and father cares for birds and flowers and uh he wasn't making up poetry and and somebody comes uh, number one uh, who he was was he shouldn't have received anything and, and secondly he lived a long way away but he comes with his request to Jesus, do you remember? And before the man has hardly got the words out of his mouth, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He didn't say, I've got to go and see if it's God's will. He didn't say, maybe I've got my appointments for tomorrow, but I will come and heal him. There's absolute confidence in the goodness of God. Ah, but you say, and this is where the text really begins to get awkward. Um, why does God allow all the pain and the suffering if he's good? Well, number one, 
do not make a judgment about God when you're hurting. Because in your pain, and I'm saying this kindly, I believe Father understands this too. When, when you're in pain, you, you miss what God is really up to. It's the way it is. And it doesn't matter what kind of pain. Pain. And also, you see, we humans, and, and it, it's simply that. There's nothing wrong about it. it. As humans, we must. It's a driving force. I've got to find meaning to life. I can't let something just happen. I've got to find a meaning to it. And I have to find someone to blame. So whatever's going on in my life, I've got to find an ultimate meaning and someone's to blame and I'm in pain. And it ends up that we blame God and the meaning is that we say it reluctantly, but I guess this is good for me. You know, I've got to, God's really working this out. We've missed the biggest point. Why did God allow this? Because he's not into the allowing business anyway. Um, you know, this whole argument, if God is good, then why does he allow pain and sickness? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about it? Well, you've, you've missed the biggest point. You should come to our Bible school. Um, module 2, creation. When God created, and specifically us, but it, this applies to everything, and I'll use a word that you might not mean. God created, and it was a contingent creation, meaning it's written into creation. It's in everything in creation that God does not make it happen. He's given laws to nature, and he gave us free will. And I don't say that he sort of gave it to us as a toss-out gift. Free will is part of our very being. We're not robots. So you see, when, when a hurricane comes, God didn't send it. Um, there are certain weather patterns. And we get involved in that. You realize down there in the Amazon, and I'll say it carefully, wicked men whose only thought is greed are hacking down the Amazon forest just to get some money in their pocket. And the government of Brazil is letting them do it. But that sends into chaos the weather up here because of the beautiful synchronization how God made it all. And what happens in the Amazon affects the weather up here. God didn't do that. That part of it, man did it. But also there's written into the atmosphere weather patterns. And that, that's just it. It's part of creation. 
And so creation acts according to, shall I say, choices within nature. I'm sorry, it doesn't put any meaning on it. And you can hardly blame weather for being weather, but that's it. So see, God doesn't hate New Orleans and sends them hurricanes all year long. It's just where they're situated and where the weather patterns in the Gulf are. It's a contingent creation. And what happens in our life, we made choices. And we might have made them 20 years ago, but we made choices. And not only us, but we're in a world of choice making. And other people's choices affect us. And we choose based on other people's choices. And it gets in unholy mess. But don't say God did it. Don't say God did it. I I don't want to get far into this. I, I can leave it to your imagination. But the food on your shelf is hardly worthy of the name on the box. It has long since disappeared by men who have no concern for your life or health, who just want more money and are filling you with chemicals. Um, But I I won't bother to go. You see what I mean? That's a choice. And it's our choice to buy it. Is there another choice? I don't know. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying what is happening to us, we're in a contingent world. I you choose to be here this morning. I choose to be here. This is, we're not robots. And you see, what we would like is for God to take away the free will of certain political figures. Um, we would like God to take away the free will of the leaders of certain nations. The trouble is, they want him to take away your free will shucks the fact is we're not robots and we cannot imagine human life in which i have no freedom especially here in the states but we want other people to lose their freedom and say why does god allow it he, he, it's not a matter of his allowing it. it's written into creation that's the way it works and it's the way you work like everybody else But the amazing thing about Scripture, it shows us and tells us that although he does not allow it or make it happen or essentially stop it, he's right in the middle of it and he's walking with us in it and through it. He's with us where we are in the deepest darkness that human choice has created. And in that darkness, he is being good to us. And let me tell you this, the heart of pain, at any level, the heart of pain is not what you have or don't have. The heart of pain is how I look at it, how I see it. I I see here in America people who say they can't live until they've got a house that probably all of Bandera could live in and um, they've got to have at least two cars at least, maybe three four would be good and a boat and I can't live without it 
and then you go into that house and find a family that's hardly talking to each other and they're at each other's throats and you call that life. And I go to third world countries and I sit down with people in mud huts. I sit down when they've only got a piece of rice to eat and they are full of joy and they relate to the family. They love each other. They stand for each other. And I'm not saying poverty's good. I'm just saying it isn't the thing you have or don't have. It's the way you look at it. it it's, it's, a, it's a mental matter. And the, the wonder of the gospel is God comes to us not simply to give you this and give you that and give you the other like a spoiled, dysfunctional father. But he changes you on the inside so that you now see what life really is. And what would normally be a pain to people suddenly isn't a pain to you. Does that make sense? You see, he doesn't violate creation. God in Jesus came and became human in every respect in the middle of a contingent creation. He came in the middle of our choices, in the middle of choices that had led to profound darkness. He took it upon himself. He becomes the ultimate cause and effect. He comes inside the world of our pain and shares with us the relationship he has to the Father. He shares with us his faith in his Father's goodness. He tells us that he'll never leave us or forsake us, but he will walk his life of peace and joy within ours. And he will be our insight and our strength. Okay. This is what faith is. Faith is not the ability to believe God for ten houses on an airplane. Faith is the ability to see life through the eyes of Jesus and to see that at the heart of it all, God is good. And he is giving to you all the strength you need for this minute. He's giving to you all the insight to walk through this valley of the shadow of death. And he is giving you the strength of his presence. And he's giving to you the joy and the peace that is beyond all human understanding. Now that's faith. He said, I have believed to see the goodness of God, to see it. There is more goodness all over your life, more than you ever realize. His goodness is all around, and we don't notice it because we're not come, it's not coming to us the way we anticipated. I told God, this is what has got to happen. Well, it didn't happen, so God's left me. You ever noticed it came through the back door and you didn't even notice it? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? See it. Can you see it? See the goodness of God. We're waiting for things to happen the way we want them to happen. 
because we think that would be the best way so that we miss the wonder of how it is happening. And that's why we don't do as the New Testament did in everything give thanks. Because to us, we lost the ability to see things to give thanks. And see means that it begins in your mind with eyes of the understanding. It begins with the imagination. That's what it says in Isaiah. You will keep him in perfect peace. What we're talking about here. Whose mind and the word in the Hebrew is imagination. But our translators were afraid of saying that. But that's what it says. You will keep him in perfect peace whose imagination is stayed on you. We have tomatoes growing in our backyard. And we have a cage over them so that they can lean on it. Otherwise they'd fall flat down. And what they're doing in English language is they're being stayed by that cage. They're leaning into it, and it, the, the strength of the cage becomes the strength of the tomato plant, whose imagination is stayed, whose imagination, the way you inwardly see things and expect things and picture things, is stayed upon him. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, your imagination is the most powerful thing God gave you. It's looking into the future, expecting and seeing his goodness in every twist of life. Look, when David said in that other psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What is that? That's an operation of the imagination. He's seeing a picture and he said, if it comes to that, even though, if it comes to that, if it comes to me, like a little sheep walking through this terrible valley of the shadow of death, if it comes to that, I'll imagine the worst day of my life and then know that you will never leave me. He's in envisioning, do you understand? He's envisioning the Lord being with him. All faith and hope are entwined with our imagination because it deals with how we see life. Now let me say this, and I'm not being a legalist here. I hope you realize that. But I, I've been studying this in human beings for the last year plus during COVID and during the last election. We have lost our imagination. We, we are... Our mind is dead. We've lost our imagination. We have sold it to the TV. We are feeding our mind on the pictures on a TV screen. And what you're feeding that emotional diet produces fear and anxiety and the expectation are things getting worse and worse? I have watched people in the last year who probably have never left their chair just watching TV so they know the latest statistics on how many have died of COVID. 
and then wonder why they are terrified, why they dare not walk out of their house. You get it? Pictures in our head that control our thoughts, control the cells of our body, control our lifestyle, control our expectation of tomorrow. They did a very interesting study. Do you remember the Boston bombing? Remember that? That marathon, the bombing? Now listen to me carefully. A study done by some pretty good scientists. They found, they were studying um, post-traumatic stress. And they found that the people who watched that on TV had more post-traumatic stress than the people who were actually there. That's a scientific fact. The people who were there were not as traumatized as the people who saw it on CNN and Fox. Because the pictures go into your mind and take over. So David is, yeah, Absalom's trying to kill me. I have thought that that hurts. Of course it hurts. But he sees through it that God who is good, who is covenantally committed to me, is working in giving to me the strength in giving to me the insight into his character. And I, I'm, I transcend it. I'm, I'm going through it, and it's a valley of the shadow of death. It's almost a valley of death itself. But I'm finding a strength. Why? Because I, I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing. I'm not looking at all the trash and trauma that's coming out of Absalom's mouth. I'm not looking at the opinion of people standing on street corners in Jerusalem. I'm looking only at the goodness of God. And I believe I shall see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Okay, try this one on for size. Do you remember Lamentations? Yikes, you don't read that book before you go to bed. Um, Jeremiah sat in the ruins of Jerusalem, the stench of death, the smoke of buildings that once were. Babylon has raped the city. They've gone. Jeremiah's left there looking at the city. And he pours out his, yeah, he says, let, let me quickly read it. Um, he pours out his, he says, um, yeah, remember my affliction, my wandering confusion, the wormwood and the bitterness. My soul remembers. I'm bowed down within me. He said, I'm, I'm just about flat on my face. Then suddenly he says, this I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You are my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. 
The Lord is good to those who wait for him. He said, sitting here in the middle of the end, end of a nation, end of a dream, end and end of everything. He says, then I remember you, your goodness, and you've not forsaken. Great is your faithfulness. I could keep going, but time defies us. Believe to see. Believe is agreement. If you believe something, you agree with it. When Goliath came against Israel, Israel believed Goliath. They believed Goliath. And so, therefore, they opened themselves essentially to Goliath and says, come and get us. We believe your threats. David came on the same scene and ignored Goliath and believed and says, Goliath, your arm's too short to box with God. Have you got yourself in a mess today, my man? You, you see what I'm saying? It's a great, belief is agreement. Um, and you know I've told you before that belief is um, an Anglo-Saxon word that comes from very early in the English language. It's made of two words, be and leaf. Be, well, that means to be. I'm alive. I is. I, I, I believe. So I'm alive. But in my life, leaf, what's leaf mean? Leaf is a guarded treasure. It is my darling. It's my precious. It is it's my everything. So what is belief? Belief is I live in accord with guarding the most treasured possession that I have. You believe the goodness of God, then you live in that treasure. God is good. Um, he believed he would see it in the land of the living. Well, we believe not only, we don't try to believe, we trust in the faith of Jesus. He came into our world of cause and effect and consistently believed the Father. Out of a human mind, out of human eyes, he trusted. He goes into death and his final words are, into your hands I commit my spirit because I believe you are going to bring me out. His treasure was, I am not alone, the Father is with me. Now that faith he puts into us, we share that faith with him. We trust his faith. We have his thoughts, we have his imagination. It's called the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit. I walk into a situation, let me see this situation through your eyes. Create your pictures in my imagination. Think your thoughts. Give to me your expectations. Let me walk in the hope to which I have been called. That's New Testament. In the land of the living. That means right now. I'm not going to give goodness wriggle room. I'm not going to say, well, it will be good when I get to heaven. 
Um, no, he said, in the land of the living, while I'm still breathing, let me see your goodness take on flesh. How, how, how do we get there out of this world in which we find ourselves? I could take another whole hour on this, but I might do it. But very quickly, be still. Become the watcher of what is happening to you. You ever done that? To rest in the goodness of God and look out on yourself and just simply say, Malcolm's getting very anxious. Malcolm's in pain. Do you know what I mean? Stop losing yourself in your emotions. Stop being absorbed into your anxiety. Stand back inside the goodness of God and merely watch what is happening to you. And know surely goodness and loving kindness is always at work right now, right now, right now. Look through the darkness to the goodness and then expect it. Anticipate goodness. Refuse to go down the road of vain imaginations that are full of darkness that actually see God abandoning you and being faithless. What I'm saying is you don't tune in to the chaos while you're expecting the goodness. That's an impossibility. Jesus is our map because we're off the map right now. Have you ever been off the map? It's a weird feeling. I was in the Cascade Mountains in Oregon and as we went up the trail there was a big sign, you are now leaving all mapped areas. Okay, there's no map. You go into the jungles in Africa, there's no map. They haven't mapped the trails. <laughs> You're on your own. There's no map. You and a compass. And that's when you lean heavily on what they call a guide. A guide is a living map. A guide doesn't look at a map. He is the map. He might have a compass, but usually his brain is the compass. It's a great comfort. I don't know where I am. I don't know how to go back. And I can't see the way forward, but this guy does. And I trust my guide. That's what we do. We trust the faith of Jesus. And it's not a vague, ethereal faith of God. This Jesus is God who got in your shoes. And he's trod this path ahead of you. So relax, he knows where he's going. And he is your peace. He walks us through the minefield. Well, I guess that's it. But I, I really mean it, as if I didn't. But 
What I mean is, this isn't something to file away in your file cabinet under G. Um, no, this, this is life. You go do it. And as you do it, you discover it. Because to talk about it can sound like fiction. But once you do it, David wrote the psalm in the middle of it happening. We know the end of the story. He didn't. We go and we do it. And in this world, as we know it here in the West, it takes a great deal of determination to be still because there's too much going on. But if there's too much going on, then you've already got yourself lost in your emotions. And be still. And in being still, see the truth. And move away from all sources of other pictures that will plunge you into hopelessness and despair and anger and envy and everything else. And so, Father, we give you thanks that you are a good, good, good Father. Thank you, you've revealed your goodness in Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit, you are the good gift of the good Father, and you're the good Spirit. Take every word that I've said this morning and apply it to our lives. just wherever we find ourselves and you know we are. Let it be so. In the name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.